Welcome to Careers and Mental Health Conversations. This is the podcast where we discuss career counselling, career guidance, mental health awareness and mental health training in the workplace. With your hosts, Patrick, Sally, Tina and Amy. Hi everyone and welcome to Careers and Mental Health Conversations. Today we're joined again by Dr. Claire Kelly for part two of our series of podcasts. Claire leads research and curriculum at Mental Health First Aid Australia, having written her PhD thesis on the mental health literacy of Australian adolescents and has a passion for mental health of young people. Today's podcast will focus on youth mental health and I'm thrilled to welcome Claire back to our Careers and Mental Health Conversations podcast. Welcome Claire. Thank you for having me again, Tina. It's always fun. Uh, It's a pleasure. Thanks very much for your time. So, Claire, can we start the the conversation by providing a bit of an overview of youth mental health first aid and teen mental health first aid um, and, and how it might differ from standard adult mental health first aid? Yeah, yeah. Look, um, I think first thing I should say is I know people get a little bit confused by the terminology. Um, and the reason for the difference between youth and teen mental health first aid is that youth mental health first aid is our 14-hour program for adults who are supporting young people, whereas the teen mental health first aid is a peer-to-peer program. So it's one we take into the high schools themselves and teach kids some of the skills that they need to offer a friend help and most importantly how to get an adult involved and when that's really essential. So I guess the big difference between the standard and the youth mental health first aid is that although we always focus on the importance of early intervention, I mean if somebody is 90 years old and having their first episode of depression we still want to intervene as early as we can. But when it comes to youth mental health first aid, because we are talking about supporting people largely in the high school years, but it can be appropriate a couple of years after that as well, we are we're dealing with a period of a huge psychological, social, physical change, uh, all of that development. And although all half of all people who will ever have a mental illness, ever have an episode of mental illness, will have had their first episode by the age of 18. Uh, It is sometimes just really not on people's radar because they're expecting to see change. Mm. It's hard to say, well, is this normal adolescent moodiness that might be just associated with growing up and with changing feelings and hormones and and, uh, increasing independence, or is this about something that could be a mental illness? Plus, I guess the in terms of the content, um, certainly we cover quite a lot about um, adolescent development and more about the sort of the intersection between the changes of of adolescent development and the changes that we might see with a mental health problem. We also include um, a section on eating disorders because mm-hmm. although those can occur at any age, they are more common in young women aged between, let's say, roughly twelve and twenty four. Uh, that's the, the group that is most likely to be affected. And non-suicidal self-injury, which is a, a major concern for people working in schools, in emergency departments, helping people to understand that behaviour and what motivates it and how they can support someone who's engaging in that behaviour. Yeah, so it's so- got a different flavour is, is largely it to, yeah. compared to the standard programme. And it's very specialist in terms of the information that you provide around signs and symptoms and how to um, to maybe differentiate between the normal behaviour of a teenager, which is often unpleasant, if we're honest, it is. Uh, <laughs> maybe when you were a teenager, I was a delight. <laughs> oh, it, 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 as a parent of, of a t- current teenager and one that's just gone through it, it's uh, honestly, it's one of the most testing <laughs> times. Um, but it is difficult to, to differentiate um, sometimes between what is just the normal angst of teenage years and what could be an emerging illness. And I know that people do worry about missing things, don't they? Mm, they do, they do. And they also worry about pathologising everything. Yeah. So that they're going to see everything that they're noticing, you know, it, could this be a mental health problem? Am I overreacting? And I think that part of the the reason that it's so tricky is not just that we're expected to see these changes, but because so much of what we hear about and talk about when we're talking about the symptoms of mental illness are really the symptoms 
of mental illness as they present in adults, mm. whereas young people can have quite a different sort of presentation. So, for example, although if we think about something like depression, we can certainly see some of the same sorts of symptoms, changes in um, the way a person, the frequency a person eats uh, and how much sleep they're getting and changes in mood, obviously. With young people, we're actually less likely to see that sort of sad, hopeless sort of expression and we're more likely to see irritability mm. and uh, perhaps a sort of a high level of conflict and uh, tearfulness that can turn into screaming matches that feels very much like adolescent drama and it's important that we have a think about how long we're seeing this, these sorts of changes for and how... I guess how persistent they are. Are they worsening over time? Is are they there most of the time? I mean, if somebody comes home from school in a bad mood every day and and barks at the family and hides in their room for a while and then is a delight in the evening, then probably not a problem. Probably mm. just not thrilled with school at the moment. But if someone gets home from school in that mood and barks at the family and then won't come out of their room, and we're seeing a whole lot of other things as well, and that's most days rather than just the occasional day, then they're more likely to be looking at a, a serious problem. So it comes down to consistency of the signs um, and then the, the impact and duration. So how much is this impact and how long has it been going on for? Exactly. Functioning is a really, it's, it's functioning is a, probably a more important measure in a lot of ways because we're talking about a very, uh, turbulent time because we are more likely to see changes in moods. We're talking about young people who are going through changes in hormones and, and brain structure and a whole lot of things that can lead to moodiness in a very natural way. And there's a big difference between that natural sort of change and a, and a change that has caused enough decline in functioning so that the person might not be you know, perhaps risking not getting through school or not getting through in the way that they would usually be able to, might be isolating themselves socially, which is going to lead to a slowing down of that independence, which is so important in the late teens and early 20s to go on to a successful adulthood. Anxiety plays, a, a, a in my view, plays quite a large role in, um, in our development when we're teenagers, kind of, um, you know, pushing through the things that we find really difficult or anxiety provoking. Um, do you think there's more prevalence for anxiety amongst teens these days than ever before? And if so, what do you think it's down to? Look, I think at this stage we've got to say, yeah, that's a that's a there's far too much evidence to show that to just say, oh no, we're just talking about it now. You know, I think we're seeing we've seen huge increases over the last sort of 15 years and we, we continue to see them. And I think there's a, <clears throat> there's a lot of different causes. And, you know, I um, hate to sound like a wowser, but one of the things that really worries me so much of the time is social media. Mm. Um, and it's not because uh, I'm not saying that there's anything inherently bad about social media. And in fact, the way that most people use it, the way many people use it, it's simply a way of connecting with people um, and that can be terrific, particularly for people who are isolated because of where they live or because of disability or a whole range of other things that might make it hard for them to be social. But at the same time, we are seeing a lot of young people who accept just wholesale that what they see on social media, particularly amongst uh, influencers, mm. people who are you know, sort of held up to be the coolest of the cool, living the best lives and the most successful lives, that those lives are incredibly, incredibly curated, that one very casual-looking photograph might have taken hours to get right mm. and that even the apps themselves actually drive people to post more frequently and to be more anxious about it, you know, how many likes am I getting? Does, does this mean that I'm not as pretty this time as I was last time? Mm. Or the, even when we look at Instagram, you, or it's almost assumed that you will always use a filter and those filters take away flaws and everyone has flaws. And I, I think that there's, that's certainly part of it. It's not the entire thing. Mm. I think there's also, you know, when we look at, uh, we made so much progress sort of in the last, uh, I guess, 
probably from the 60s or the early 70s in changing the way that education worked so that there was more of acknowledgement that people were going to learn different things at different rates and it was okay to let people focus on the things that they enjoyed and were good at and wanted to do to a much more standardised and comparative method of education, which I think is a serious problem as well. Beyond that, who knows? It's certainly, it's interesting. There's, um, when we look across different sorts of uh, class divides, I guess, when we look at the children of, or particularly the um, older child and adolescent children of people in some of the, the higher classes, higher socioeconomic groups, we see a lot of the helicopter parenting mm-hmm. that is more likely to result in, in, in anxiety about the outside world, that the world is a dangerous place and it's not okay to, to go running out in it. And if you fall and graze a knee, it's got to be somebody's fault. Mm-hmm. We've got to find someone to blame and you shouldn't have been running around in that area or whatever it might be. And when we look in at um, poorer kids and kids from lower socioeconomic classes, particularly where they may have parents that have to, you know, work more than one job just to keep things together or there might not be two parents at home and that one parent is not able to be as present as they would otherwise like to be. And for a whole host of other reasons, we can actually see um, higher rates of traumatic experiences, higher rates of conflict, uh, a great sense of insecurity. So no matter what group people are coming from, you know, there are going to be different pressures that seem to be increasing the anxiety disorders rate across those those class boundaries so interesting that's really interesting I have, i've never heard it kind of explained in that way that in terms of the divide because yeah. the helicopter parenting thing is um so damaging you know this mm. fear that if we don't let our children feel emotions that are uncomfortable you know that we're not protecting them in some way we should be doing everything we possibly can to stop our children from feeling uncomfortable or um being in a in a situation that provokes anxiety in them so we're we're doing everything possible not to have them them feel that and actually what we're doing is creating a generation of people that are frightened of the world and and frightened of feeling uncomfortable and um and 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 shying away from doing anything that causes any kind of emotional upset yeah and that you know, ironically increases the risk so much of a negative experience being experienced as trauma. Yeah. Uh, increases the uh, the vulnerability to a whole lot of other things and, you know, in all likelihood leads to self-medication, whether that's with alcohol or other drugs or food or video games, just uh, anything that can distract you from those feelings of not being safe. Yeah. So yeah. anxiety often starts actually in early childhood and we, what we often see in those early years is specific phobias that aren't particularly uh, disabling because, say, for example, you've got a child who's uh, afraid of thunderstorms. Unless you live somewhere where there's a lot of them, it's probably not going to be a problem day to day. If you grow up with, if a kid grows up with dogs, they're probably not going to be afraid of dogs. And if they are afraid of dogs, it's probably because they don't see them very often. So, again, not very disabling. And those specific phobias they'll often grow out of. But unfortunately, in those intervening years, there's a lot of, well, you don't have to talk to dogs if you don't want to. And and finding that, oh, a really good way of not feeling anxious is avoiding the things that I feel anxious about. So, Claire, if there were parents out there listening who had... um tween and teen youngsters at home and who were um, telling their parents that they're anxious about things and they're worried about things and um, school's really difficult and nobody's my friend um, and uh, I'm you know everybody hates me and all of the kind of things that we tend to hear from our teenagers uh, and they're telling their teenagers don't worry I'll go to the school Um, I think you're being bullied when actually it's just you know the normal kind of conflict that teenagers have or you haven't got to do this and you haven't got to do that what advice would you give them in terms of um, how to support a young person through these anxious episodes that we get during our teenage years normally to try and avoid it becoming um, a problem for us in adulthood? No, that, that's, a, that's a really tricky one. I, I'm so sorry, Tina. I would need to be a, a clinical expert really in <laughs> <Too> um, <much. laughs> anxiety for that one or a, a parenting expert. Um, I think there's certainly there, there needs to be ways to encourage kids to do the things that 
are anxiety provoking and to do those in a safe way. So, for example, practicing things um, at home, practicing conversations, uh, practicing an oral presentation that they might be afraid of, far, far better than allowing them to just avoid everything that makes them feel uncomfortable. And I know it's a really hard position to be in because you're a parent. (laughs) You don't want your kids to be afraid. You don't want your kids to be struggling in any sort of a way. But the problem is that this is a a very short-term way of trying to prevent discomfort that in the long term is going to create a happier, healthier, more resilient young person. Uh, I will say that uh, the resources that Jenny Hudson has created, um, Jenny Hudson at Macquarie University, she's an absolute delight. She's worked a lot in uh, childhood and adolescent anxiety and she is full of amazing advice. Yeah. I would recommend having a look at her material. And in terms of prevention, uh, we have, if you have a look at the Parenting Strategies website, uh, which is a, uh, I guess it's a creation largely of the University of Melbourne, Tony Jorm and um, a a range of other researchers, including myself, um, have contributed to a couple of these projects. We have guidelines that are available from there for reducing the risk of developing depression and anxiety in uh, primary school aged children, in high school aged children, and then for high school aged children as well, uh, guidelines for helping to avoid developing alcohol use problems. Mm. And there's a lot in them about things like uh, making it safe to talk about things at home, um, creating family rules that are designed to keep people safe but not keep keep people sheltered mm. I guess that sort of thing I, I think they're they're very very valuable resources and I really encourage all parents to have a look at them and also if you feel like sometimes you are making mistakes oh gosh am I being too protective am I not being protective enough to give yourself a break it's okay no one gets parenting perfectly right absolutely yeah I agree with that so my um my 15-year-old was um, desperate for a part-time job, just desperate for a job. I really want a job. I really want a job. So we helped her with a resume. She puts her resume out everywhere and lands an interview for to, to scoop ice cream at a local ice cream shop, absolutely over the moon, terrified about the interview, um, really kind of anxiety-provoking, perfectly normal. Um, goes through the interview, does a great job, gets uh, offered a position absolutely terrified now so she's gone from being like normally kind of nervous and anxious about the interview uh, gets the job terrified pushes through rocks up for her first shift in the ice cream parlor forgets to breathe <laughs> and within 20 minutes she's on the deck passed out honestly the wor- so when I, I'm telling her all the time worst case scenarios never happen <laughs> and she's on the deck passed out Um, But anyway, the moral of the story is, even though she was so frightened about kind of starting this job um, and that she would in some way do something that was going to be humiliating and and horrible, um, and then something did happen on that first shift and it was humiliating for her and it was horrible to wake up with a load of people standing over you with ice cream scoops fanning you and bringing you a bucket (laughs) to throw up. And when you're 14, it's not, not really good. But she could have come home because she she carried on for the rest of the shift. She could have come home oh, at the end and said, "I'm not ever going back," but she didn't. And even you know, even the few shifts after that were really her anxiety levels were really high. She was she was sweating, her heart was racing, and you know, her thoughts were racing. Um, she still pushed through that, and and I think it would have been very easy for us to say, "Look, you don't have to go back." That was a really horrible experience for you you know we don't want you to go back there and feel like that again but um we know in the long run that is just not the right thing to do yeah and and look what she's achieved she's stuck with it she's proven that and you know what you know worst case scenario was that she passed out and people showed that they cared i know right and that's really you know i mean i think that's amazing too and it's something that i'm i'm sure she'll remember her whole life one day you know, maybe she'll be telling a, a young person that's part of her life about the time that she started working in an ice cream shop, get, getting a good laugh out of them with that and, and showing what an impact it had on her long term in terms yeah. of knowing that you can actually get through some of the things that are that terrifying. 
Exactly right. I mean, honestly, we were so proud of her and we have laughed a lot about it. Every time she goes to work, someone will shout out, stay on your feet. (laughs) 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 Remember to breathe. Right. So that's, that's really interesting. It, the, the whole um, concept of anxiety and teens and youth, it comes up a lot for us here when, um, when we're running courses. Um, so I found that really helpful. And I know that there are a lot of parents that worry, who experience anxiety disorders themselves, who worry about their own children developing an anxiety disorder and, um, you know, and try and, and, and do as much as possible to, to prevent that. Um, I really like the suggestion, Claire, of the, of the information that's on the um, parenting strategies website and um and from jenny hudson i'll definitely look that up and we'll share that um as far and wide as we can too because knowledge is power fantastic yeah and honestly if you ever get a chance to talk to see jenny speak or even to to get her on your show she's she's just wonderful excellent now i've written all of that down we love that kind of thing that's great um claire can we talk now a little bit about non-suicidal self-injury in um, teens and youth? Um, Because I know that's an area um, of yours that you've got a a lot of insight and knowledge about. Can you give us a a brief overview um, as to some of the reasons why people, young people might engage in this kind of behaviour as a strategy to cope with life difficulties? Sure, absolutely. Look, the, the main reason that people give is that they're experiencing overwhelming feelings and they can't find another way to cope with those feelings. I think, you know, a lot of our coping strategies develop in a very natural way without us really realising that that we're doing it. We learn to self-soothe as babies or toddlers uh, and some people develop those skills a little bit faster and others don't develop them quickly at all. And Sometimes that's because of particular parenting styles or or traumatic experiences during childhood and sometimes it just happens. It's generally about an inability to manage strong emotions. Many people also engage in self-injury to punish themselves Mm. uh, in the sense that uh, they deserve to be hurt. Some people describe a a need to know that they're still alive. There is um, definitely blood underneath their skin they haven't been replaced this can be a result of dissociation which is a really a feeling of being very disconnected from the body Mm. not being present in the body Uh, but and and there are a very small number of people who will engage in self-injury as a way of trying to communicate with someone else and I I think it's very unfortunate that often when we hear something like that people say ah see it's all about manipulating someone Mm. Um, and the, but we've got to remember that there's a difference between feeling manipulated and being manipulated. Uh, many young people who engage in self-injury as a way of asking for help simply don't have any any better language available to them. And for some, it's going to be because they've tried to use better language and it hasn't been recognised for what it is. And for others, it's uh, an inability to come up with a different way of asking for help. Most people who injure themselves actually will go to great lengths to conceal their injuries from anybody. Uh, and it's, it, I find it really interesting when I talk to probably more uh, people who work in schools more than anything else, where they're very likely to encounter it from time to time. Um, and in fact, I saw some research, that fairly informal research um, done just recently about how many teachers had encountered self-injury in their schools in the last 12 months and it was more than half Mm. which uh, is probably what we'd expect given that we know that probably um, five to ten percent of young people will engage in self-injury over an entire year and sorry no that's over one month over an entire year I think it's closer to 15 percent so it's certainly, you know, it's something that's, that's, that's there. People say that they have sometimes that they've glimpsed an injury on someone's arm and they immediately feel manipulated. And it's interesting because the young person is probably trying to conceal the injury mm-hmm. and yet that glimpse, glimpse of it feels as if it was pointed. And I think that it's because of a fear of how on earth am I supposed to handle this? I think a way that many people find it a little bit easier to manage when they're trying to support someone who's been self-injuring is 
to realise that it's a symptom, not it's not some behaviour that is designed to make your life difficult. It's it's a symptom of an underlying either mental health problem or severe psychological distress, mm. and it can become the primary coping strategy because it can work so quickly mm. compared to having to learn to sort of self-soothe and maybe reach out and talk to someone when distressed. And so, yeah, so there's a lot of different motivations behind it, but they're they're largely about a difficulty managing emotions. Um, it's interesting how you talk about how some people feel as if they're being manipulated when they when they maybe see uh, an injury on someone that could be um, self injury and that, that that this person is trying to manipulate in some way. I, it got me thinking about whether even that response is a kind of learned behaviour. You know, that yes. does that make sense? Because yeah. because any other yeah, response, yeah. So any other response to an injury would be empathetic or compassionate even and 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 I want to help you and 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 tend to you and yet if there's a suggestion that this injury could be an injury that's a that's a self-injury that that need to kind of respond in an oh my god this person is trying to manipulate me that has to be a learned response of course it is and I think that one of the reasons for that is that the first time they encountered it you know and, and I suppose the two groups that I interact with at all who are most likely to encounter self-injury are nurses and uh, school staff. Yeah. And probably the first time they encountered it before they'd heard anything else, someone said, oh, it's just these these kids are just after attention, they're just trying to be special snowflakes, whatever sort of Mm -hmm. language it is. And it's much less psychologically threatening to accept that as the truth than to recognise that someone who is feeling desperate enough to injure themselves is in real need of help and it's not the sort of help that's going to be taken care of in a half-hour chat yeah. at lunchtime. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I absolutely believe that it's a learned response. And not only that, that having been teaching in this area for, oh, gosh, you know, 15 years, the difference in the way people talk about it now has been absolutely huge. I think there's a lot more people who are saying, no, no, I know what this is about and I'm not going to let anybody speak to, you know, a young person in my school or in my ER in this way. I think it's, it's, there's been a real improvement there, which is wonderful. Yeah, gosh, that is, yeah, that's really good. So Claire, if anybody was concerned that their uh, teen or um, adolescent young person or anybody of any age was um, engaging in self-injury. Um, what do you suggest is the approach that people should be taking to support that person? Well, first of all, I think it's actually really important to find a way to open the question up, open the conversation up. So it might be that you have seen injuries that you think, oh, no, I don't, uh, I think I know where those are coming from, you know, they're not cat scratches. They're very consistent. They keep showing up in the same place. Band-aids are going missing in huge numbers every month. Whatever the things are that you've recognised, or even perhaps maybe you haven't actually seen anything, but you are seeing a person who largely engages in external coping strategies that are fairly negative. So, for example, when they're distressed, they use alcohol or another drug, um, perhaps they are more likely to lose their temper with someone when they're feeling uh, insecure or confronted. And you might think, wow, is this, you know, could there be self injury going on as well? Whatever reason it is that you've got that suspicion, actually, you need to start by really asking the question and opening the conversation up, just and asking in a way that says that you know a little bit about it and you're not afraid of talking about it. Mm. So, Um, I've noticed that you've got some injuries and this isn't the first time that I've seen injuries like that on you. And I know that sometimes when people are really distressed, they can decide that injuring themselves might be a way to make themselves feel better. Is that what's happening here? Or, you know, I'm hearing that you're distressed and and highly anxious and and I'm hearing probably some negative coping strategies and I'd like to hear a little bit more about those. And you could follow that up with and, and do you ever find yourself with the urge to injure yourself or or 
injuring yourself. But it's got to be asked in ways that are unambiguous mm. and really giving people the opportunity to say, yes, and this is why. So it's never going to be, you didn't do that to yourself, did you? Mm-hmm. Or what did you do to yourself? Or anything that has a strong negative judgment on it. We've got to realise that people are doing the best with what they've got. And then we all have coping strategies that aren't the best. Mm. So that's how we start the conversation. Um, it's always a good idea to offer um, first aid, ask the person if they think they might need some medical attention. If we're not sure, if we're looking at something that looks pretty severe, we would always say, no, I think we've got to get that checked out regardless. But a lot of the time we've got to realise that the first aid part of self-injury might actually be a really important part to the person. Actually looking after that injury afterwards can be a way of saying sorry to their body, mm. uh, of uh, being cared for in a way that they can't seem to get cared for from another person. So there are lots of reasons for that. Uh, in the long term, what we want to do is find ways of um, breaking some of the patterns. Most people who injure actually injure within five minutes of the urge hitting. Mm-hmm. So it's a really good idea to find something that can actually interrupt that flow. So it could be that, uh, I'll say, for example, I might talk to someone who says that they would never injure themselves outside of their bedroom or the bathroom. So, okay, the urge is there. Let's go somewhere else. Let's be away from the house. Let's be around other people. Let's be around, let's find a dog park, an off-leash dog park where we can interact with some dogs who think that we're the best thing that ever existed for these few seconds while we're patting them. Uh, let's do something creative. Let's go for a run or get some exercise in some other way. Let's go and lie in the grass. Anything that helps to get through those few minutes because no one can stay as distressed as they are at that point where the urge is hitting for very long. It's just that it's uncomfortable. And one of the things that people find the amongst the hardest I guess, parts of the journey to not using self-injury as a strategy anymore is that sometimes you have to sit with strong negative emotions that are super uncomfortable in the body and realise that other people are doing that too and that they are finding ways to cope with it, whether it's by waiting and letting it happen, whether it's by saying, well, this is horrible, but this uh, there are things that I need to do that are really important to me and I'm going to do them anyway whether it's by finding other externalising strategies that are really positive, like talking to someone. It's it's just hard to make that step when you know that self-injury can work so fast. Yeah. Uh, Unfortunately, after after an episode of self-injury, whether it's later that day, whether it's immediate, whether it's, you know, in a few days when looking at something that hasn't healed yet, there can be all the guilt and shame that goes along with it. And although people certainly are not thinking about whether something might scar at the point where they're desperate enough to be injuring, often, you know, a few days later, it's a more scars, great. You know, everything, this is something I'm going to wear on my body my entire life and people are going to look at me and know something about me that I don't need them to know. Mm. When it comes to direct questioning for or anything, really, most people don't, feel comfortable with direct questioning um but when it comes to direct questioning when somebody is suicidal um we we, we're very clear um around the research that there is out there that we have to be very direct with someone so that we can get clear information from them and it gives them an opportunity to, to to not be judged and to share the kind of things that are rattling around in their heads that they haven't shared with anybody else and um and that it doesn't put the idea in somebody's head. We know that that is not a fact. When it comes to self-injury, because of the propensity of young people to share maladaptive coping strategies with each other, is there a is that greyer in that area around being direct? If you're if you don't see any evidence of, of self-injury, but you're concerned that the person's been that distressed, you know, I think there's a we've probably got a little bit of a false equivalency there because there's a big difference between a young person showing a friend, look what I did, mm. and the other person saying, oh, is that something I should do as well? Yeah. Compared to someone who is there expressing concern and saying, is this something that's happened? Certainly in our the guidelines that we developed, which is the, the expert consensus of 
large group of consumers and carers and uh, researchers and clinicians around the world felt quite strongly that it was really important if you had suspicions that you went ahead and asked. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, it, it makes sense to me, absolutely, it does. Yeah. Um, but then I'm just... I mean, it's sort of like anyway. if we... Imagine if we wanted to find out about substance use but we were afraid of mentioning alcohol in case the person decided to give that a try. Yeah, yeah. It just doesn't work that way, does it? <laughs> <laughs> Brilliantly put. <laughs> That's excellent. Okay, so... Sometimes we get asked around uh, when it comes to non-suicidal self-injury, is it always a precursor to suicide? Um, And what would your response to that question be? It certainly is not always a precursor to suicide, but we do know that when the people who engage in self-injury do have a higher risk of dying by suicide. Um, Self-injury is much more common than suicide is or suicidal behaviour. And so, yeah, it's certainly, I think that there's more of a concern that, oh, it's a slippery slope. Once it starts here, it's going to end in suicide. Whereas I think probably a more useful way to think about it is that when somebody's got a big ball of stuff they can't deal with, pain, uh, experiences of trauma, loneliness, um, whatever other stuff there is in that big pile, they're going to find ways to deal with it. And many people find ways to deal with it that, are pretty good you know they'll speak to doctors they will um, get long-term psychotherapy or counseling they will reach out to friends and family they'll take the dog for a walk um, and get exercise and and eat well and do things to help themselves to feel a bit better and and always sort of keep just on top of that pile of stuff but for, for others those things either aren't available haven't been learned haven't been experienced as well And so instead they might try and deal with all of that stuff with alcohol or another drug, um, with tobacco, with um, binge eating perhaps, with over-exercising or with a whole range of different things. And some people might engage in self-injury for the same reason. Mm -hmm. So it's more that there is those, those that big ball of horrible stuff is a risk factor for all of those negative coping strategies that have potentially long-term seriously negative outcomes. And also no coping strategy is likely to work every single time. And so if usually uh, a person perhaps uses alcohol or another drug when they're distressed and then one day they go, well, what happens if I do this to myself instead, cuts themselves or punches a wall or, or whatever else it might be and finds that that's a relief? then that's something that they're more likely to start doing and reaching for more quickly. Mm. But whenever, when there is a failure of all other coping methods to work, that's where suicide can become a really, you know, much more serious risk. And certainly people who engage in non-suicidal self-injury who have less aversion to doing harm to their bodies uh, are probably more likely to have suicidal thoughts move to suicidal behaviour. Although our understanding of those relationships is definitely still in its infancy. Yeah, yeah. Well, it make that, but that makes sense. That explanation makes sense. Um, what, do you know what the, um, the prevalence of people that engage in non-suicidal self-injury as young people, um, that they carry that coping mechanism into their adulthood and throughout their lives? Is that a large number of people? Do you know, I, I can't tell you. I wish that I could. And certainly when we look at the Australian National Epidemiological Study of Self-Injury, which was conducted back in 2008, we certainly got a much better idea of what it looks, that snapshot at that time in Australia, what it looked like. And what we could see there was that uh, the median age of onset, so half of all people who will ever engage in self-injury, um, have done so before the age of 17. Mm. or by the age of 17, rather, and the rest will start after that. But in terms of frequency, the group that's most at risk is 18 to 24-year-olds who are more likely to have injured within the last year and that we saw self-injury in all ages. Now, looking at that snapshot and trying to sort of extrapolate from it is a dangerous business But um, because we can't, we would know more data, we can't really say things have changed, but either 
we are seeing an increase, a serious increase in the number of people who engage in self-injury or we have a cohort of uh, adolescents and young adults who are injuring more than any generation before that we're aware of. And it's really hard to know whether that means that 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 cohort will have higher rates in older adulthood or whether their use of the strategy, you know, in a year or in a month reduces over time. So perhaps, you know, they're always going to have um, a lifetime incidence of self-injury, but maybe by the time they're, they're 70, they haven't done it for 50 years. Yeah. It's um, funny. It's funny you say that about that age range, though, because I was just about to say I'm going to ask you a really obscure question. Do, do, do you do we hear of um, many incidences of people uh, who are elderly that engage in non-suicidal self-injury? Not huge numbers, yeah. but when I talk to some of my colleagues who who work in uh, largely higher dependency units in um, aged care, they certainly do see self-injury, and sometimes. It, it's the first time that the person has ever done that behaviour or perhaps they, they can't recall from um, early adulthood or adolescence. But certainly the motivations appear to be very similar. It's a way of sort of expressing desperation and an inability to cope. Um, it can also be a way of expressing that there's something physically wrong that they can't explain. So it could be bladder infection or an injury that no one's identified or something like that. Mm. One of the real problems in that age group, though, is that the risk of infection and the risk of complications of an injury are much higher. Yeah. So it's um, definitely something very important to to identify. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, let's move this along a little bit because uh, time is never my friend. I want to, if I can, with you, Claire, talk about 13 Reasons Why. Um, uh, the third season is now out. And I know that when the first season of 13 Reasons Why um, was released, there was a lot of controversy around this this TV show um, and a stance from Mental Health First Aid Australia. Yes, um, which remains our second most downloaded document off the website to this really? day, which is very interesting. It is, yeah. Basically, um, to look I, to give a really simple background on it, the, the original season of 13 Reasons Why was about a young woman who had killed herself prior to the beginning of the series uh, and had left 13 tapes um, of her explaining all the people who had contributed to that decision. Uh, at the same time, she was very, very present throughout the entire series, both as sort of an apparition and also in people's memories. And it's it's very concerning when it really does promote the idea that suicide could be a way of seeking revenge, a way of feeling better, uh, when that's simply not the case. And there were there were some very harmful moments throughout the series, um, explicit scenes of sexual assault. Uh, the the suicide scene was actually um, televised, although in quite an extraordinary decision um, a few weeks ago. Netflix actually removed that scene from the version of the, the the show that is on their site. And throughout the entire series, there was almost no mention of mental health and the one attempt that the young person took to uh, made to speak to an adult about what had been going on with her, he was not helpful. He didn't follow the sorts of guidelines that, I mean, I don't know too much about in America, but certainly in Australia, his behaviour would have resulted in probably criminal charges. Mm. Really just said, no, well, if you won't tell me who did this to you, then, uh, well, they're going to graduate this year anyway and you don't have to worry about it. So it really, really promoted the idea that adults are pretty useless when it comes to asking for help. So, you know, all of that is content which is really uncomfortable and that's the absolutely scratching barely scratching the surface Mm. um but then in addition to that i think you know netflix shows a lot of them come out all in one go and those that's certainly a show that has come out all in one go historically and it means that a young person can watch the entire show in their room in one go with the lights off relating to a person who is depressed and suicidal on their screen and that is seriously worrying. It's something that, um, I mean, it's a decision that they made. I would certainly 
have hoped that by the second season they were prepared to recognise that there might be a problem with that and, and release the episodes one episode at a time. So and but I will certainly say I think kids need to realise and parent their parents need to realise as well that just because the entire season is there doesn't mean you have to watch it all in one go. I instead encourage parents to say, look, if we if you're gonna watch the show, we're gonna watch it together and we're gonna talk about it and we're gonna be critical of what we see. So we don't we remember that this is fiction, this mm-hmm. is not reflecting reality. I think it's important that um, people, I would never say that anyone should watch it who didn't want to in terms of adults or definitely in terms of kids. I mean, mm-hmm. that's one thing I, I, I found really extraordinary. A lot of my colleagues who work in schools um, in the first year, the kids were saying, I feel like I should watch it, but I don't really want to. And their counsellors and their student welfare officers were saying, well, don't, you don't have to, there's no obligation for you to watch something just because everybody else is. You don't have to talk about it just because everybody else is. You know, if you know, if, if you think that this is going to create distress, it probably doesn't have an upside that makes it worth doing. So I yeah. thought that was really terrific how many kids were identifying that for themselves um, and how adults were being really supportive of that. Yeah, I think um, watching one episode at a time, if you're going to do it that way, watching with a parent, watching, uh, actually having discussions about it. Do you think that this part was realistic? Do you think that this would really happen? Uh, what's, what are the problems with having this person present even though they've, um, they've died now? Uh, what impression does that give you? I think those are really important conversations to have. Agreed. Why do you think it's the second most downloaded resource on the website? Because, is it the curiosity or is it, what do you think it is? Uh, I all I can tell you that I know for sure is that it was the link was distributed very very widely, um, and I mean there, I certainly wasn't the only person who ever wrote a resource in that uh, year about supporting people through watching the episode. Um, I know that it was distributed very widely through schools networks mm. uh, very quickly, so it could be that. But I think people are worried about you know what they can do what they can say they don't want to say to a teenager no you, you're not allowed to watch this mm. um, because that's all it's going to do is make sure that when they do watch it they don't tell you that's right. <laughs> um, okay. but, it, but it's also pretty confronting stuff to watch and mm. being prepared to have the conversations that go along with that you know I mean even things like gosh I mean there's obviously there's parties where alcohol is being consumed so this is not a bad moment to have a conversation about, hey, you know, I just want you to know that I, I hope that you don't drink, um, but I realise that sometimes young people do. Mm-hmm. And um, if you ever called me from a party because someone was really drunk and you needed help, that's okay. We're still going to have a conversation about the alcohol, but you're not going to be in trouble. Yeah, exactly. You know, those sorts of conversations. A show like this can create conversations possibilities for having conversations around things like alcohol and uh, body autonomy consent yeah issues like that and if we can find ways to focus on those things that actually might have some benefit to to discuss rather than focusing on the presence of of a person who has died who is taking revenge on a uh, entire school for what they see as the wrongdoings yeah see on the other side of the show that that I really absolutely hate is the suggestion that there is blame to be laid at people's feet if somebody does die by suicide that there is blame absolutely absolutely it's you know it's, it's something that's fundamental to our guidelines is is that um you know that there are things that you can do to reduce the risk of somebody acting on their thoughts of suicide but you cannot make a person's decision for them mm. it can't be your fault yeah. um it's no, no, even even in situations where, yeah, okay, perhaps someone did something that they really shouldn't have to that mm. person, but there's more than one way for that person to deal with it as well. It's uh, absolutely certainly not victim blaming, but it's um, you know people often do carry a lot of really inappropriate and very damaging guilt when they know someone who's died by suicide, and certainly don't want that. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, <clears throat> thank you, Claire. That really is helpful information around that whole 13 reasons why. It's a, it's a, conversation, it's a conversation starter in my house, um, you know, having two, two young 
young ladies living under my roof or one of them that left home now but when she she came home um to visit us over the last few days and uh, she's 20 now and she was talking about the third season and I raised my eyebrows and you know she knows how I feel about that but she you know she's 20 now but I have got a 15 year old in the house too and I know that the curiosity is there and you know she hasn't seen 13 reasons why yet but I said if she wants to watch it um you know we I really do want to watch it with her so that you know she feels comfortable and she can ask any questions that she's got I really just don't want her to see it but there you go I never get what I want she's gonna I'm sure she's going to be curious it's inevitable but at least she at, you know at the, at the very least at least she knows that you are prepared to have conversations oh, with yeah. her yeah definitely no, that is that is so important I think it's one of the, the places where we can, I guess, lose a bit of connection with kids sometimes is that we wait until really important moments to have really important conversations when yeah. really we want to have conversations about things before they matter. Exactly. So you don't want to be having the first conversation about alcohol use when someone's just Absolutely. been drinking alcohol. Yeah, yeah. Or we so don't when, want to have conversations. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's so much. And, and we've got to be able to have those in ways that where it's okay for a young person to challenge you, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I often get asked, oh, my kids are asking about legalisation of marijuana and I just oh, do you think they're smoking? And I say, well, it, I think that it doesn't matter. They want to have this conversation with you. They want to challenge you. If you have that conversation with them in a way that expresses your opinion but doesn't imply that they're doing anything wrong, Absolutely. how much more supportive and how much more useful is that conversation going to be? Yeah. And when in the history of since the dawn of time, when has just saying, no, I don't want you to do it, to a teenager ever led the teenager to not do the thing it is you don't want them to do? It doesn't work like that. <laughs> Well, I mean, I was a delight, but don't double check that with my mum. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> oh, aren't we great? Oh, that's so interesting. Thank you so much, Claire. I've really, really enjoyed our chat again. And I never kind of really know the direction it's going to go in, but that's what I really like. Oh, no. It's like a very comfortable oh, conversation. Yes. It is. If we had a glass of wine, it could go for another couple of hours. I've got no doubt. Oh, no doubt. <laughs> we should do that. We'll see what we can set up. We'll do we an will. Email. We will. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Claire. I really do appreciate you coming on again for part two. Um, we'll schedule our part three um, in the coming weeks, and um, and I'll, and I'll sign us off now and say thank you so much for joining us again for careers and mental health conversations. Thanks for having me, Tina. I'll talk to you next time. Excellent. Thanks, Claire. If you enjoyed this podcast and you would like us to appear in your feed, please hit the subscribe button and you're also welcome to leave us a review. For more information, visit careerdevelopmentcentre.com.au.